welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every week, decisions are made across Maine that affect the future of our environments. Lawmakers in Augusta propose or debate new bills. Mainers speak up on proposals made by corporations or state agencies. Clean energy projects are launched, or communities take action to address threats to clean air or water or open spaces that they cherish. Since 1959, NRCM has been on the front lines, tracking these developments and tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law. NRCM does this to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. So every two weeks, we'll sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories you need to know about and what lies ahead. Thank you for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Hi, I'm Colin Durant, NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director, and I'm here with our Advocacy Director, Pete Didesheim, to discuss some of the most recent news affecting Maine people and our environment. Uh, Just to get started, Pete, I know you like to get out and explore uh, new outdoor places. I'm curious if you visited anywhere recently that really struck you or that you would recommend to folks. Uh, well, actually, this last weekend, we went out to Carter's cross-country ski trails in Bethel, and we hadn't been there before. I'm sorry to say, those trails are great, uh, and there's some wonderful trails groomed. But kind of more broadly, we've used the two apps, uh, websites for Main Trail Finder and for All Trails to find dozens of, of land trust trails that we have explored over the last 10 months. and. If people haven't looked at those two sites for finding trails, you should. Maine is just filled with trails. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's amazing. It just seems like, you know, everywhere you look, there's, there's somewhere new to explore. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about for later this year, we just uh, made a reservation for Cobbscook Bay Campground um, down place. east. And I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to check that, check yeah. that out. Although yeah. we'll see how the drive goes with... Um, Two, two yeah. young twins and, and a seven, then seven-year-old. Uh, we'll we'll cross our fingers, um, but it'll be worth it. Um, so let's start the, uh, the episode like we do every week uh, or every two weeks. Um, from where you sit, what were some of the most significant developments for Maine's environment over the past uh, two weeks since we last spoke? So there's really three things that have struck me as being really important for Maine's environment and start with one that's really important for the future of the planet. Uh, President Biden joined the Paris Climate Accord on February 19th. Uh, And so for having the U.S. rejoin the Paris Accord, that's a really big deal. One month after he was sworn into office, as people know, the previous administration announced in 2017 that the U.S. was planning to withdraw from the Climate Accord. And many of us were worried that other countries would follow the U.S., but fortunately, no state, no other country did. And there's still 189 countries that are part of this global agreement to avoid dangerous climate change. Uh, And the goal really is to limit global warming to less than two degrees Celsius increase. Fortunately, the UN rules require a four-year pause before a nation can actually withdraw. So the US was only out of the agreement for 107 days. So we're back in, this sends a really important message globally that the US recognizes that this is a global problem and that we wanna be part of the solution. And now that we're back in, all eyes are turned towards April 22nd when President Biden is expected with his team to announce 
some new goals for emission reductions by the US is, and his, uh, he will do this at a virtual climate summit. Um, and we're hoping that those goals will be a 50% reduction in carbon emissions uh, by uh, 2030 from the 2005 levels, which would be pretty similar to what, the, to what we've adopted here in Maine. So that's a biggie. Second Huge thing, I'm, yeah. Second thing I'm focusing on is uh, just happened this week. Uh, the Secretary of State announced that proponents of a new referendum had gathered a sufficient number of signatures to place a, a ballot measure on the ballot in November to block the CMP corridor project. So they certified that there were more than 80,500 ballot signatures uh, that had been submitted, and that's far above the minimum requirement of 63,000. So looks like that signature gathering effort has been successful and Maine voters may get a chance this November to vote up or down on this project. Yeah, that's great news. So I'm just curious, can you just walk us through what happens next? So, you know, how does it, how does from certifying these signatures, how does that get on the actual ballot? It's a good question because <laughs> we've been around because, this track once before. Yeah, um, yeah the last one didn't. <laughs> so, uh, what we expect, CMP is going to hire an army of attorneys and consultants to try to block the path for this referendum, like they did last time. Um, they have no interest in letting Maine people vote on this measure. So CMP has spent more than $400,000 on lawyers uh, just last year uh, to try to block the referendum. Uh, they spent $120,000 on an Arizona-based firm called Signified, whose sole purpose is try to attempt to discredit signatures for citizen initiatives. So we expect that they're going to appeal the Secretary of State's certification to the Maine Superior Court. They'll probably lose there because this is a big buffer of, addition, of signatures way above the minimum necessary. So then they'll appeal to the law court and they'll probably lose there. And then they will try to challenge the constitutionality of the language. And I think they'll lose there. But the important thing to, to focus on is that Probably in early May, this measure will be at the legislature for public hearing, um, and the lawmakers have the opportunity to adopt it um, or to send it on to the voters, and I'm sure that they would uh, pass it along to the voters. And the way the language reads, it would uh, retroactively prohibit projects like the CMP corridor in the upper Kennebec Valley and require a two-thirds vote of the legislature for projects like this in the future. So. I think there's a pretty good chance Mainers will have a chance to vote on this project uh, come uh, November. Well, that's great news for voters. Yeah, and um, and then finally, the other thing that I'm looking at, uh, which was big over the past week, was the Maine Public Utilities Commission announced that it's launching an investigation into CMP's mismanagement of cost estimates associated for solar projects. So um, as people have read in the newspapers, um, CMP suddenly had huge cost increases um, that uh, they were gonna levy on uh, developers who were trying to uh, connect solar projects, really a hundred solar projects in 74 communities with more than four, more than 500 megawatts of power. Um, we're gonna suddenly have hundreds of millions of dollars of increased costs potentially. There was one example of a, of a internet interconnect uh, expense for a project. It was going to be 100,000. CMP suddenly said it's 1.4 million. For another project, it was supposed to be 239,000 to connect 
the project to the grid, suddenly it was going to be 12 million. So um, we think it's important that the PUC investigate this. And our hope is that if there are any increased costs, those should be borne by CMP shareholders and not the solar companies and certainly not CMP's ratepayers. Yeah, that's right. It's great to see them taking action and somewhat related, you know, one of the biggest national stories uh, were the winter storms that crippled Texas shutting down its electric grid uh, in, in, in part because the gas and oil infrastructure just wasn't built to be resilient to cold. And, um, you know, Texas's electric grid is, it's just for that state. It's very different than, than ours, for example, that's regional. Um, but, you know, of course, the fossil fuel industry quickly tried to blame wind turbines, frozen wind turbines, but the data showed this was demonstrably false. Um, I'm just curious, do you see any lessons in that Texas experience um, for, for here in Maine? Well, that was quite an energy disaster. It left more than 4 million people without power, frozen pipes, people without drinking water, business disruptions, dozens of deaths. So that was really an extreme weather event that is exactly what climate change is causing around the world. And I think the lesson there is that we're not prepared. Uh, we're not prepared for huge temperature changes like this. This was 40 degrees below what's normal for Texas. Uh, we're, not use, we're not prepared for extreme heat, extreme cold, the intense rain events, the wildfires. So I really see this as flashing warning signs telling us that climate change is happening now and that the costs of our failure to mitigate emissions and to prepare for climate change already are enormous and are gonna continue to compound. So it's much more expensive to delay action to than to act now. So I think it really, it really shines a spotlight on, on the work we're doing here in Maine as part of our climate action plan and what the Biden administration is doing and what world leaders are doing to try to um, address the climate crisis, both through mitigation of our emissions and for preparation, which is necessary for these extreme events. Yeah, I mean, I noticed I noticed that um, the main public utilities chair, Phil Bartlett, did, you know, one of the things he mentioned in opening this investigation into CMP solar staff is, is they're also just going to look at broader questions about our grid and the impacts of climate change. So it's, of course, good to have that discussion everywhere. But I wanted to shift shift gears because public hearings for bills uh, that have been printed and received an LD number are well underway um, online virtually. And a few of the bills that we're tracking have already had hearings. Lots haven't been printed or received LD numbers yet, but a few have had hearings. So can you just tell us a bit about those hearings? So uh, let me just tell you about one that I thought was pretty interesting. It was a hearing on three bills that had been introduced to repeal Maine's statewide ban on single-use plastic bags. So that law was adopted in 2019. So just kind of to remind folks about the plastic pollution problems that we face, Americans use 100 billion plastic bags a year, and that requires about 12 million barrels of oil to manufacture those. There's a very tight link between the fossil fuel industry and the plastic that we're all becoming increasingly dependent on. The average American brings home about 1,500 plastic bags each year, and those bags are used on average for about 12 minutes before they become trash. 
and only 1% of plastic bags are returned for recycling. And it takes about 500 years for a plastic bag to degrade. So we've got a huge plastic pollution crisis. And single-use bags are one of the easiest ways to address it. More than 20 main towns adopted ordinances in recent years to restrict the use of plastic bags, to encourage the use of, of reusable bags. Um, and then the state uh, with NRCM strong support in that also of, of the retail association and the grocers uh, agreed that it would be good to have a statewide ban. And, and right now eight, eight, eight states currently have bans. But 15 states have enacted laws prohibiting towns from banning plastic bags. So we were concerned that with these three bills coming in, that we would hear from the plastic industry, we would hear lobbyists from the fossil fuel sector, um, because they've launched campaigns around the country. Literally, there's a, a bag the ban campaign funded by the Plastic Industry Association. There's also an American Progressive Bag Alliance, a pro plastic bag public policy and marketing group. So we anticipated that some of these lobbyists would come in. But interestingly, when the bills were introduced, there was only two supporters. Um, there was two lawmakers who, who presented. Uh, two of the lawmakers connected with bills um, didn't even show up. One was the one, other one who did speak was a co-sponsor for one of them. And then there was a long string of really fabulous Maine citizens testifying in opposition to this rollback. And there was a doctor from Gre uh, the town of Green, uh, Greg D'Augustine, and he's a member of the Maine Medical Association. And one of the arguments that's been raised by those who want to repeal our bag ban is they're claiming that, um, that uh, we need to have plastic bags because reusable bags are spreading COVID-19. Well, he was fascinating because he addressed this directly from a medical perspective. And he said that he's been a, he's been a practicing surgeon for 35 years and he reads on average at least one scientific paper daily on COVID. And a year into this pandemic, um, he has not read a single uh, case, a single paper with a single proven case of COVID-19 infection based on surface contamination of the virus. And what he's pointing out, in which I think lawmakers on that committee clearly heard, was that COVID is spread through respiratory droplets, that non-porous surfaces allow longer survival of the virus. So handling plastic bag handing plastic bags to customers is probably um, worse from a health perspective than letting them use their cloth reusable bags. And here in Maine, um, unfortunately, the governor has delayed implementation of the plastic bag ban until July 1st, 2021. Um, it was supposed to go into effect on Earth Day, April 22nd, 2020. We think that that was not based on sound science. We don't think that the science supports uh, any efforts to delay their use of reusable bags. Uh, we do know that most stores are allowing people to bring their bags if they bag their own items, which we encourage people to do. And we were really pleased at this hearing that I think science is prevailing and uh, those who are opposed to uh, Maine's action to restrict plastic bag pollution and, and the use of plastic bags, uh, they didn't show up. And, and that's good news because in the past we have seen lots of industry lobbyists come in from out of state 
to try to overturn what we have put into place to help protect our environment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in some of the news stories on this, it was great to see Maine CDC reiterating, um, you know, the science that you were just speaking about. And I'll just say, you mentioned that, you know, stores are now allowing reusable bags. If, if you know, folks use a store often and, and that's not the case, it's at the discretion of the store manager. So certainly reach out to the store and encourage them to do that. And, you know, there's lots of great, um, um, our sustainable main team has done a few great blog posts about how this is safe. So we've certainly got the info um, that you can use to make that case to them. Um, well, I wanted to talk about, um, I, I think we need to touch on perhaps the the biggest environmental story in Maine from the, the past week, which was the sad news that environmental champion and outdoorsman George Smith uh, passed away after a battle with ALS. Can you, can you just speak about George's legacy um, and NRCM's relationship with him over the past, um, well, it's more than just years. It's years, yeah. yeah. Uh, it is really sad news. George Smith was, uh, he died at age 72, um, of ALS, as you mentioned. And uh, he was a wonderful partner for NRCM, but for so many people, he really touched the heart of a lot of people. It's really, I think it's hard to think of anyone who embraced Maine's outdoors really as fully and with as much passion and commitment as George Smith did. He loved hunting and fishing most of all, of course, but he also loved writing, traveling the state, meeting people, finding new places. He testified and wrote about removing dams, cleaning up our rivers, reducing pollution, conserving land, protecting wildlife. He really did as much as anyone can to urge decision makers to protect this place, this state, and to not to do anything that would wreck it for future generations. And one public hearing that I just really admired him so much and, and stands out is, is when he came to testify against a, a bill that would have allowed uh, a mineral mine in Northern Maine at Bald Mountain. And he stood up at the mic and he held up a brook trout that was carved by his dad, Ezra Smith. And he told lawmakers that it was, that it was absolutely the case that this fish was more beautiful than a piece of gold. And he pleaded with them not to allow anything to jeopardize these fish. And he explained that Maine has almost all of the native brook trout left in the nation's lakes and ponds and said that tourism is our biggest economic driver and no one comes to Maine to see a mine, but mines could definitely ruin the things that do bring people here. And that includes our beautiful brook trout. And he ended his testimony, I just remember this, by urging lawmakers, please do no harm. And I think his testimony for that bill and many others affected the direction of, of that law and it was defeated and we put in place the strongest mining rules in the state and he his work has really touched a lot of of the policies of the state including on climate change he became a, a strong advocate for for climate action and he's just an inspirational wonderful man with a sparkle in his eyes who who even took up birding late in his life even after he was diagnosed with ALS yeah, I mean, there were a lot of really wonderful remembrances. I think just this past weekend, uh, the Portland Press Herald's outdoors writer Deirdre Fleming had had one, for example. But that lots of 
Yeah, lots of great remembrances. And I, I just wanted to note that, you know, our former podcast host, Carly, uh, had a wonderful interview with George about a year ago, actually. So that's episode yeah. 19, if you want to check that out and, um, you know, uh, listen to that. Um, so let's wrap it up real quick, um, as we do every every time, just by hearing from you about um, what's coming up in the next couple of weeks that you're going to be sort of tracking and paying attention to. Well, about a, a third of the bills have been printed that we expect to be printed. So there's just going to be a slew of new bills coming out every day. And, and those will be quickly scheduled for hearings. And some of the more important ones on climate and clean energy and land conservation will be coming forward. But there's one thing that I'm one uh, set of hearings that I'm focusing on that are happening in the US Congress that I think are pretty important and worth noting. So, um, and they're happening this week, the Congress is holding hearings on President Biden's nomination of Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico to serve as the Secretary of the Department of Interior. And she was the first Native American ever nominated to serve in the cabinet by any president. She's a member of the Laguna Pueblo and she's really a, quite a remarkable woman and we certainly hope that she um, is confirmed. She's a 35th generation New Mexican, 35th generation. She's the child of military veterans. She attended 13 public schools before graduating from high school. She started a salsa company. She put herself through college and law school on food stamps and student loans. She's been an inspiring lawmaker and we uh, strongly support both the nomination and the confirmation. We've signed letters and we've urged uh, Maine's uh, two senators to strongly support her, but uh, she is coming under fierce attack from, from some Republican senators in, in states that uh, have huge fossil fuel industries. And um, that's unfortunate. And we do hope that she will be confirmed. So that's happening up at the US Congress level, but I think it's important uh, for Maine tribes, for tribes across the country, and for the Department of Interior to get a leader like her into place. Yeah, I know Maine's tribes have spoken out strongly in support of her nomination, as has NRCM and lots of other people. Um, well, thanks so much for that. And I, I'm just sort of curious, um, before we go, we've had several weeks of this new legislative session under our belt, as I mentioned. Um, and I thought we could just end by getting your reflections quickly about how online lawmaking is working and, and what it means for organizations like NRCM that are, are advocating to protect Maine's environment. What, like, how is it going? <laughs> it's a really good question. Uh, I think lawmakers are, are scratching their heads about this too. I think they're making the most of a difficult situation. Uh, I've watched a lot of these committee hearings now. Sometimes they're having trouble connecting the the next witness in, sometimes the screen is freezing, but overall I think it's going okay. But what I really, um, uh, what troubles me is what's being missed by lawmakers not being together. And Senator Mark Lawrence mentioned during a panel discussion recently, he's the Senate chair of the, of the Energy and Utilities Committee that in a normal morning at the state house, he might have hundreds of conversations with lawmakers, with, uh, with lobbyists, with the public, with legislative staff. And I, in a normal day at the state house, there'd be thousands or tens of thousands or countless number of conversations 
that where information is shared and people understand more about each other and and there's innovation and serendipity and mixing of points of view uh, that all can lead to increased levels of trust and deepening of relationships and breakthroughs and creativity that are important for the legislative process. And it's really hard to replicate any of that through Zoom. And so I'm, I'm sorry that, <laughs> that that's not happening. I look forward to it happening again. Uh, this this is usually a, a time when the state house is a beehive of activity and conversations, but we are doing the best we can to connect as many people as we possibly can to the legislative process. And we did just create some really good resources, a couple of videos uh, that are posted on our on our website that help uh, people understand how to uh, uh, deliver oral testimony and how to write good testimony. And there's, we have a, a toolkit on our website with a bunch of information to help guide people who are interested in participating in the legislative process. And we do want as many people as possible to, to plug in. And I think lawmakers really do need to hear from their constituents as much as possible uh, to help make up for the, the absence of conversations that they're having with uh, people at the state house to, to help learn about bills that are important. So please check out our website, watch those videos. If you have any questions, contact us because we want you to be involved in helping uh, pass good bills. And there's a lot of really good ones this year. Thanks, Pete. Sorry about that. I muted myself. <laughs> That's I'm a pro. Watch out. <laughs> um, thanks, Pete. The, the, um, You're demonstrating what the lawmakers are learning how to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly what. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. So you were just illustrating the point. <laughs> thanks. You've always got my back. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for that perspective. And I, you know, those videos that Kristen and Todd on our team did are are really great, and the toolkit that Beth helped put on the website are fantastic. There's some really great tips in there, and I think. You know, it it just emphasizes the importance of uh, people making their voice heard, and 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 I think there's, you know, you used to have to drive to the state house to testify, and th the one silver lining is, is if you lived really far away, you know, that might have been a barrier for you, and you might not. There's maybe people that haven't testified for that reason because it was just too long of a drive, and now you've got an opportunity to testify because it's virtually. So there, there's a little silver lining there, but but check out that new take action toolkit on our website. I'll put a link to it in the episode description so that you, our listeners can find it easily. Uh, and until we speak next time, I hope that you all find uh, some time to make your voice heard on an issue that you're particularly passionate about. Thanks again, Pete. You bet. Thanks a lot, Colin. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast listening apps. To learn more about NRCM, please visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at NRCM Environment. Until next time, thanks for your interest, attention, and involvement in the collective efforts by Maine people to protect the unique woods, waters, and wildlife of our state. Thanks again.